Hi, I'm Jen, and I host the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. We all want our children to lead fulfilling lives, but it can be so hard to keep up with the latest scientific research on child development and figure out whether and how to incorporate it into our own approach to parenting. Here at Your Parenting Mojo, I do the work for you by critically examining strategies and tools related to parenting and child development that are grounded in scientific research and principles of respectful parenting. If you'd like to be notified when new episodes are released and get a free guide to seven parenting myths that we can safely leave behind, seven fewer things to worry about, subscribe to the show at yourparentingmojo.com. You can also continue the conversation about the show with other listeners in the Your Parenting Mojo Facebook group. I do hope you'll join us. Welcome to the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. I'm really excited to do a deep dive today on the topic of problem solving with none other than Dr. Ross Green. Dr. Green is author of the books The Explosive Child and Raising Human Beings, which describe interactions between parents and children, and the books Lost at School and Lost and Found, which look at children's experiences in school. If you're a parent of kids aged 1 to 10, does your partner think respectful or gentle parenting is a load of rubbish? Do they ever point to your failure to get the kids to behave in the way that you want as an example of why your method doesn't work? Do they ever yell at, spank, isolate, deny privileges, and or shame your kids? If so, you need tools to be more effective in your gentle parenting so your partner can get on board as well. After last year's workshop, parent Sarah said, this workshop was exactly what I needed to reground myself in my values and parent from that place. Thank you so much. Learn methods that work in my free setting loving and effective limits workshop. We'll get started very soon. So enroll now at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash setting limits. In this episode, we're going to do a deep dive into the collaborative and proactive solutions or CPS method that Dr. Green developed. And if you're a long-time listener, you'll probably notice some parallels between this and the episode we did on nonviolent communication a year or so ago. These approaches really are key to moving beyond a power over kind of relationship with your child to a place where you can comfortably share the power in your family and with your child. I'm not saying your child gets to rule the roost and walk all over you, but sharing some of your power with them can go an enormous way to resolving so many of the struggles you're having right now with your child. The key is to know how to do it so your child engages with you in the process. Because if you can do this, you can move beyond needing to set limits on your child's behavior and engage in a truly collaborative relationship with them. If you'd like to learn more about doing this, then I would love it if you would join me for a free workshop. It's called the Setting Loving and Effective Limits Workshop, mostly because I think most folks think that what they need is more limits or better ways of setting limits. And in the workshop, we will help you to set limits that are effective, but we'll also show you how to set way fewer limits than you're setting right now. And at the same time, feel as though you're actually getting to a more cooperative place than you're in at the moment, where your child wants to work with you to solve problems. So if you try problem solving as well and it's fallen flat, we'll also have lots of support to help you work through those challenges so you can find more confidence and peace and calm in your family. You can find more information and sign up for the free workshop at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash limits. That's yourparentingmojo.com forward slash limits. If you're catching this episode a little bit late, we'll actually have a webinar on Saturday, December 12th at 11 a.m. And we'll cover as many of the ideas from the workshop as we can in that time. 
You can sign up for that at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash limits webinar. And if you happen to miss both of those, but you know your family needs a lot of help with setting limits and the kinds of problem solvings we're going to do today and a whole host of other things as well, then I hope you'll consider joining my parenting membership where we do all of this and so much more. You can find information on that at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash parenting membership. So Dr. Green is here today to start this process by talking through the research on collaborative and proactive solutions and also talk us through some of the problems that parents in the free Your Parenting Mojo Facebook group told me about when I mentioned that I was doing an episode on this topic. So to firmly introduce him, Dr. Green was on the faculty at Harvard Medical School for over 20 years and he's the founding director of the nonprofit Lives in the Balance. He's been featured everywhere in the popular press, and he lectures and consults throughout the world when he's not confined to his home in Portland, Maine. Welcome, Dr. Green. Thanks for having me on. And so I wonder if we can kind of dive in at the deep end here a little bit and talk about power and relationships. I'm wondering if you can tell me, how do you see power in traditional parent-child relationships? And what about in the relationships uh, between parents and children after they've read your books or after you've worked with them? Well, you know, power has been a big deal in relationships for a long time, and particularly between parents and kids. I think that what many people refer to as old school or traditional parenting relies a lot on power. Power meaning adults telling kids what to do. In other words, I say jump, you say how high. Unfortunately, somebody very important has their voice lost in that equation, the kid. And if we continue to simply parent that way, then we perpetuate the cycle of power. And I am one who extends my work beyond parents and kids to society at large. I think that in our society, we see many populations that have felt that they have been oppressed with power as the main ingredient. Many populations, many groups of people who have felt like their voices have not been heard and they have not been included. And so I think that we are reaping what we have sown in the power department, and it ain't good. Mm -hmm. And I think that at this point in society, a lot of those groups, rightfully so, are saying, we won't be quiet anymore. We demand to be heard. And I personally think that that is a very good thing, but I especially think it's a good thing as it relates to kids who in some ways are demanding that, not as powerfully as other populations are when it's adults. But the good news is there's really no downside to hearing kids and to involving them in solving the problems that affect their lives. It's actually, quite frankly, all upside So what I hope happens after people read my books is that they um, begin listening to kids better. I think of listening as the purest form of empathy and that we involve kids in solving the problems that affect their lives and recognize that that actually prepares them for the real world in ways that are a whole lot better than simply imposing solutions on them. Mm. Yeah. And it seems a big part of that vision that you have is, is this reframing of problems from being, well, you have a problem with your behavior and that's what needs to change to this idea of compatibility and incompatibility. Can you tell us how you see that? Sure. Well, the incompatibility and compatibility language is not original. That comes from some very brilliant thinkers 
who were writing way before I was writing, uh, people whose last names are Thomas and Chess and Burke <laughs> and Bell and Gottlieb and Samaroff, people who set forth what might best be thought of as what's called goodness of fit theory, which was originally a statistical model, but that was then applied to kids and temperament. But it actually is kind of simple. It basically says that outcome, a person's outcome is the product of the degree of fit or match between characteristics of the individual and characteristics of their environment. Now, I'm a little bit reductionistic when it comes to that. When it comes to characteristics of the individual, I'm talking mostly about skills. When it comes to characteristics of the environment, I'm talking about the expectations the environment is placing on a particular individual. When kids have the skills to meet our expectations, there is compatibility, and we would expect an adaptive outcome. When kids do not have the skills to meet our expectations, there is incompatibility. And then there is what I call incompatibility episodes, otherwise known as challenging behavior, <laughs> otherwise known as the signal. By my way of viewing things, behavior is just the signal, just the fever, just the means by which a kid is communicating something fairly straightforward. I'm stuck. There's an expectation I'm having difficulty meeting. So if we power through that, and if we only focus on the kid's behavior, once again, the kid's voice is lost. We may improve compatibility that way, but not forever, I can assure you of that. When we are willing to listen to what the kid has to say, involve the kid in the solutions, we are doing nothing less than improving compatibility, but we are also improving our understanding of this kid, improving communication with the kid, improving our relationship with the kid. Once again, all good. Yeah. And I think that, that that's so important. And it, immediately when I started thinking about that, it reminded me of the zero to three parent survey that they ran in 2015. And they uncovered an expectation gap for parents of young children. And I went back to it and pulled out some stats and it said 56% of parents believe that children have the impulse control to resist a desire to do something forbidden before the age of three. 36% think kids under two can do that. 42% believe two-year-olds should be able to control themselves instead of having a tantrum. 24% believe that one-year-olds should be able to do this. So how does this expectations gap kind of interact with, intersect with uh, the, the theory that you're talking us through? Well, once again, when our expectations are out of whack based on what a kid can actually do, we're going to get challenging behavior because that's the signal that things are out of whack. And that really is the best way to think of challenging behavior. It's the kid's way of communicating. Something is out of whack. Now, here's what's interesting. Those are aggregate statistics, but I want to add another layer. Those are statistics about all parents in general and suggest to us that our expectations for our kids may be unrealistic. But there's another layer to that, and that is the individual kid. Because the individual kid is bringing unique characteristics to the mix as well. There may actually be some one-year-olds who are able to control their impulses. I haven't come across many, but maybe there are some. If that kid can do that and parents are expecting that, then even though the parents 
expectations are out of whack as it relates to most kids. Their expectations are in line for their kid. And that's really what it comes down to. Yes, the data that you cited tell us that our expectations may be out of whack in general. But what really life comes down to is your kid, your expectations, and whether your kid can meet them. Not whether the neighbor across the street, the kid of the same age and same gender or same anything can beat them. We're talking about your kid here. And if your kid is exhibiting challenging behavior, your kid is communicating that something is out of whack. Now, the reason that's important is because for a long time, we have viewed tantrums in toddlers as simply them trying to get their own way trying to exert their will. It changes the color of things quite a bit when we recognize that challenging behavior is the kid's way of communicating that things are out of whack and that we have to take a deeper dive into what we're asking of the kid, our expectations, and what the kid can actually deliver the goods on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there are two ideas that you're getting at here. One is parenting the child that's in front of you, <laughs> not parenting the average of children or the child you wish you had. You know, yes. you wish that your two-year-old could not have a tantrum when they're feeling like something's not right. And then secondly, the view that this behavior that needs to change, air quotes, is not the child's problem. It indicates a problem in the relationship, a problem that the two of you are having. So... Yes, but I'm even more specific than relationship. Mm -hmm. The behavior communicates that our expectations and the kid's capacity to meet them are out of whack with each other. Yeah. Okay. And by the way, that's why I've always said, and I think this is in The Explosive Child, probably in Raising Human Beings too. I can't remember what I wrote in what, what book. <laughs> but my definition of good parenting is being responsive to the hand you've been dealt. Yeah. As you said, not being responsive to the hand you wish you'd been dealt, but yeah. dealing with the child who's right in front of you. Yeah. Okay. And so now we're going to get kind of into the meat of, <laughs> of the CPS approach. And so we're going to talk through, you know, what is plan A, what is plan B, what is plan C? And then I'm going to, I want to, because I'm super curious and the people who listen to the show are super curious. We're going to spend a bit of time in the theory here. And then uh, we're going to get into some questions that listeners have submitted on ways that this is not working in their families and how we can problem solve that. So firstly, can you please help us understand what is plan A, plan B, and plan C? Sure. Well, what I have parents do as part of the CPS model is proactively identify the expectations that their child is having difficulty meeting reliably. And I call those unsolved problems, also known as problems that have yet to be solved, also known as problems that are waiting to be solved. <laughs> and that's why those problems are still causing challenging behavior because they're not solved yet. Mm -hmm. So the first thing I have parents do is make a list of unsolved problems, and that is an indispensable first step. The reason it's indispensable is because we want parents solving those problems proactively, not reactively. Without the list, we're still stuck in the heat of the moment whenever a problem pops up. The list is also important for another reason, and that is that we're going to have to prioritize. If our kid has a meaningful number of unsolved problems, problems that have been longstanding, you know, many of these problems are three, four, five years old, not talking about the chronological age of the kid, talking about how long the kid has been having difficulty meeting this expectation. We don't want to deal with them in the heat of the moment again. 
We want to do it proactively. But also, we don't want to work on them all at once. If we try working on them all at once, none of them are going to get solved. And in one way or another, that's what often happens, is parents end up working on all of them at once in the heat of the moment when they pop up and none of them get solved. And I have a funny feeling that some of the questions people are going to be asking later about things that are not working for them may trace back, at least in part, to what I'm saying right now. We need the list. We need to prioritize. We want to be solving problems proactively. It is very difficult to do that if you don't have your list and if you haven't prioritized. Then there's basically three approaches to those problems. And I've called them for a long time, plan A, plan B, and plan C. And what I've done with the plans is I've identified the, basically the three ways in which parents try to deal with problems with their kids. It really does come down to A, B, or C. In the CPS model, you're really only using B and C. You're not really using plan A very often, if at all, when you're implementing this model. I'll explain what each plan is in a second. But I also want to make an important point before I explain the plans. Notice these are for unsolved problems. If a kid is meeting a particular expectation reliably, you don't need one of the plans because it's not an unsolved problem. It's a met expectation. So if a kid is brushing his or her teeth as well and as often as we'd like him or her to before going to bed at night, you don't need one of the three plans. It's not an unsolved problem. It's a met expectation. No plan needed. If a kid is doing homework as well and as often as we'd like him or her to, you don't need a plan. It's not an unsolved problem. It's a met expectation. The only thing you need the plans for are for the expectations the kid is having difficulty meeting reliably. So plan A is where you're solving the problem unilaterally. Plan B is where you're solving the problem collaboratively. Plan C is where you're setting the problem aside, at least for now. Plan C is important because it is the prioritizing plan. It ensures that we are not working on everything at once. It ensures that we have prioritized. It's us saying, we're not working on that unsolved problem right now because we have bigger fish to fry. Prioritizing is a very important part of the model. But on any problem that we are not working on with the kid right now, because we have removed that expectation, it won't cause a challenging episode because we've removed that expectation, at least for now. Not forever, but for now. That's brilliant. <laughs> and, and I'm extrapolating. The, the reason for doing this is because if you're trying to work on everything at once, I mean, it's like a nag fest for your child, right? So, right. you know, we need to do this. We need to do that. You're not meeting my expectation here. And it just becomes overwhelming, I would imagine, from both the parents and the child's perspective. Correct. And here's the interesting thing. A lot of the overwhelming part gets taken care of just by helping caregivers identify unsolved problems. First of all, it moves them away from behavior, which feels unpredictable to them, mm -hmm. but it also organizes the effort. I've had many parents look at me and say, so that's it? <laughs> Those are all the problems that are causing challenging behavior in my household. And I'll say, well, unless there's some you haven't thought of yet, yes, those are the problems causing challenging behavior in your household. And after we prioritize them, we're going to solve them incrementally. 
And then you are going to see a dramatic decrease in challenging behavior in your household, not because of stickers, not because of timeouts, because those don't solve problems. Those just modify behavior, but because solved problems don't cause challenging behavior, only unsolved problems do. That's why you're in the problem-solving business in this model, not the behavior modification business. Plan C is important because you can't work on everything at once. That leaves us with only two other plans, A and B. Both represent a way to solve a problem with a kid, but as you've already heard, with plan A, you're solving the problem unilaterally. With plan B, you're solving the problem collaboratively. What I spend most of my waking hours helping people learn how to do is solve problems collaboratively. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we kind of seem to default into this plan A, right? If we don't make a conscious effort to plan B, plan A is probably what's just going to happen. We do, but there's another important point to be made there. And that is if we find ourselves in the heat of the moment, we greatly increase the likelihood that we're going to head for plan A because it's already hot. We're under duress. We're in a rush. So heat of the moment points people toward plan A more than anything else. The rest is habit. (laughs) Okay. So let's break this habit. How are we going to plan B? (laughs) What are the steps involved? There are three steps for solving a problem collaboratively. They are called the empathy step, the define adult concern step, and the invitation step. As I always say, the names of the steps don't matter so much. The ingredients matter a lot. The main ingredient of the empathy step is information gathering. Gathering information from your child about what's making it hard for your child to meet a particular expectation. I think the empathy step is the most fun, but I also think it is the hardest. The reason I think it is the most fun is because I'm always fascinated when parents hear things from their kid that were completely unanticipated. (laughs) Uh A good example of that, I was doing a podcast with a father who does podcasts, must have been a year ago. And he was telling me about his three-year-old daughter who was having difficulty brushing her teeth before going to bed at night. And But he thought he knew what was making it hard Mm -hmm. for her to brush her teeth before going to bed at night. He was positive that it was the taste of the toothpaste. So like 10 or 12 flavors later, she was still having difficulty brushing her teeth before she went to bed at night. So finally, he did the empathy step. Uh, I've noticed you're having difficulty brushing your teeth before going to bed at night. What's up? And it turned out what he learned from her is that when he used the electric toothbrush on her, it got water all over her face and she hated it. And I said to him, well, now there's a concern that 12 different flavors of toothpaste would never address. The reason the empathy step is hard is because we adults frequently don't know how to do it. If you are accustomed to simply telling your kid what to do, and your kid is accustomed to simply being told what to do, then early on, especially, many empathy steps can get off to a bit of a ragged start because your kid's just waiting for you to lower the boom, and you're not sure what strategy to use to extract information from your kid. And we can go through all of that if we want to. But the define it all concern step is where the adult is entering his or her concern into consideration. What are we adults concerned about? 
why it's important that this expectation be met. Why is it important that this expectation be met? And what I'm always telling adults is, if you're not sure why it's important that this expectation be met, then I'm not sure why it is that you have this expectation. (laughs) Yeah, that's a critical step that often gets forgotten, I think, (laughs) that we don't examine ourselves whether the thing is worth setting an expectation over in the first place. Well, and what's interesting is sometimes we get to the define it all concern step and the parents have just heard what the kid had to say in the empathy step. And I say to the parent, okay, okay, Mr. Thompson or Mrs. Thompson, what's your concern about that? And they say, you know what? I don't think I even care about this anymore. (laughs) But I'm not relying on that because most of the time they do care about it, but they've got to say why they care about it and why do they care about it? Because of how the unsolved problems affecting the kid or how the un- and or how the unsolved problem is affecting other people. Now both parties have had voice. Now both parties have agency. We need that agency thing to work a little bit further for us in the invitation. That's where we are putting our heads together, collaborating on a solution. But the solution must meet two criteria. Number one, it's got to be mutually satisfactory, meaning it truly addresses the concerns of both parties. Number two, got to be realistic. Both parties got to be able to do what they're agreeing to do. Here's what I've been saying a lot lately. And world history bears me out on it. If the solution is not realistic and mutually satisfactory, I promise you this problem is still unsolved. Mm -hmm. But it's not going to be mutually satisfactory unless we know what the concerns of both parties are, which is what we're accomplishing in the first two steps of plan B. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I actually, I like this invitation step the best. It's so much fun to see my daughter come up with ideas for ways that we can get both of our needs. Last. She's six right now. We've been practicing this for three years, three and a half years. And uh, yeah, it, it's almost like she'll ask for something. And sometimes I'll just say, I don't think I can do that. You know, Ma, I, I want to be with you while I'm working right now. Well, could you work upstairs? <laughs> could I bring my snack down here? She immediately starts, you know, how can I meet my needs for being close to you? And how can you meet your needs to get work done? And it's amazing to watch. <laughs> Just make sure, and I'm I'm a stickler about this, that sounds like a plan B that took place in the heat of the moment, spur of the moment. (laughs) But if your daughter is frequently looking for your attention when you're engaged with something else, if that's Mm -hmm. not an uncommon issue, then your best bet is to try solving that proactively because if you're engaged in something else when she's raising that issue, that would be poor timing on trying to get it solved. <laughs> yeah, point taken. And and I'd love to maybe dive into, just because it's so pertinent to what we're talking about right, right here, a listener question. When a listener is saying something like, you know, it's we stop at the park on our way home from school and my child doesn't want to leave and I've tried all the, you know, we've agreed in advance maybe even that uh, we're going to set a timer for five minutes, we're going to give a certain number of warnings and all the rest of it. And I can see to an extent why this is not working because the child wants to keep playing. (laughs) The child's need is not being met by the action of leaving the park. And maybe there are some days when we can be spontaneous and we can stay an extra half hour and we can grab a pizza on the way home and, and that will be a fun evening to have. But there are many, many other times when that's not going to be the case. And the option of leaving the park 
is never going to be appealing to the child. How, how do we go about doing it, the CPS method, when the thing that seems like it needs to happen is not something that's going to be appealing in any way to the child? Well, a few points here. There's many things we ask kids to do that are not appealing. And a good percentage of the time, they do them anyways. I, I'm not sure that teeth brushing is particularly appealing. Yeah. But they do it, right? I'm not sure that homework is particularly appealing, but they do it. <laughs> I'm not sure that taking out the garbage on Tuesday mornings is appealing, but they do it. I'm not sure that getting off the Xbox to come in for dinner is appealing, but a lot of kids do it. We're when using, they agree enough. <laughs> but we're using plan B for the ones who are not doing it. But just because a kid is struggling to do something doesn't mean it's not appealing. Many kids do things that are not appealing. So the fact that it's not appealing is not a deal breaker because kids do things that are not appealing to them all the time. But now let's get into the nitty gritty. First of all, I heard a solution. I'm going to give you five minute warnings. This is one of the most common solutions and also one that works least frequently. I'm going to give you a five minute warning. Now, that solution, now I'm working backwards, would only work if what we heard from the kid in the empathy step was that they always got surprised when it was time to leave the party <laughs> and that a five-minute warning would be very helpful. Right? <laughs> which always happens. <laughs> That's the only condition under which that solution would work. Yeah. But I'm missing something. What I'm missing here is the empathy step. I'm missing what's making it hard for the kid to leave the park in the first place. And here's what I frequently find. Once we do the empathy step and we find out what was really getting in the kid's way, we find that the solution we had come up with before we knew what was getting in the kid's way could not possibly have worked because it didn't address what was really getting in the kid's way. Yeah. But there's another piece to the story that was interesting, and that is that I can't quite tell if the kid actually ever knows when it's actually time to leave the park. Because sometimes we get to stay longer and sometimes this is one of those days when we do have to leave when mom says it's time to leave. If that's unpredictable, if the kid doesn't know that as we're entering the park, then we actually don't have an expectation because we're deciding that the kid needs to respond to the fact that this is random. If you have a child aged 1 to 10 and everything you say is met with disagreement or argument, if they continue to ask even though you've explained that your no really does mean no, if they refuse to do basic things like put their shoes on, brush their teeth and stay in bed at night, if you're seeing physical aggression, things like hitting, biting, cooking and scratching, you are not alone. With a few adjustments to the way you set limits, your children will listen to you and cooperate with you. After last year's workshop, parent Eliza said, I feel like a whole new world has opened up to me. Sign up for the free Setting Loving and Effective Limits workshop now at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash setting limits. We're going to start together on Wednesday, April 24th. The kid needs to respond to the randomness really well. Mm. And if this kid is having difficulty responding to randomness really well, then dealing with the randomness in our solution is going to have to be in play as well. And now the whole thing about this not being particularly appealing in the first place has taken very much of a back seat. Yeah, I get it. 
the kid would stay at the park forever. But most kids leave the park, right? And a high percentage of them leave with just a little bit of extra pushing. I'm here talking about the kid who isn't. There are many things about that situation that I'd want to hear a lot more about before we'd be able to come up with a solution. Most importantly, what yeah. is the kid telling us about what's hard about leaving the park? Mm. And, and what if, I mean, it's just, you know, I like playing. I like being at the park. That's not going to be enough in the empathy step. Okay. That would be the kid's initial stab at what's hard about leaving. We are then going to have to probe for more information so that we understand it way better than I really like the park. Okay. So this seems like a good opportunity to talk through drilling. Is, is that yes. where we're going with this? Okay. Do you, do you want to walk us through that? <laughs> <laughs> Certainly where we've ended up. Okay. There are eight drilling strategies. And the reason there are eight drilling strategies is because I found that a lot of adults weren't exactly sure what to say mm -hmm. to extract high quality information from their kid. And in the case of this example, to move us beyond, I just really like the park or it's just really hard to leave, mm -hmm. right? And those are legitimate things for the kid to say. It's just that they don't take us far enough in terms of understanding what's hard about leaving the park. So I'm not going to go through all eight drilling strategies, but I'll go through, through a few of them, including the most important one. The most important one is reflective listening. Some people would call it mirroring. Mm -hmm. Simply saying back to the kid whatever the kid just said to you and adding a clarifying question or statement like, how so? Or I don't quite understand. Or I'm confused. Or can you say more about that? Mm -hmm. Here's how it would sound so far. I've noticed you're having difficulty now, you know, it's, it's interesting. What I would do with the parents first is I would say, can you please tell me when it is time to leave the park? Whenever we say so. Hmm. Now, whenever we say so is too random. How long do we have at the park? It varies. Then we actually don't have an expectation right here, except that the kid will leave the park when we say so. Yeah. This will go a lot better if we actually have an expectation. Give me the average amount of time you spend at the park, 30 minutes. For the time being, let's say that your expectation is that the time at the park will be 30 minutes. Sound okay? Just for practice, yes. I've noticed you're ha now I'm ready to do the empathy step because now I actually have an expectation. Notice that it's difficult for you to leave the park after 30 minutes. What's up? That's what the empathy step sounds like when you're, that's, that's your intro, thought I turned the sound off. That's your introduction to the empathy step. I just really like the park. Reflective listening. You really like the park. I know. Um, how so? Well, there's lots of fun games and there's kids who I like to play with there. Still reflective listening. Got it. There's lots of fun games. and. There's kids who you like to play with there. Now I'm going to go with a different drilling strategy, asking W questions. Who, what, where, when. But I still don't understand what makes it hard for you to leave the park. What makes that part hard? Well, first of all, I never know how much time I have. Interesting. <laughs> Secondly, I'm always hoping that this is one of the days, although you really haven't told me whether it is or not, that I could stay longer. And third, I'm just really having a lot of fun. 
And fourth, I know that when we leave the park, I'm going to have to go home and do my homework. Goodness. Still reflective listening again. Those are a lot of reasons to not want to leave the park. But notice, we are now getting into the meat of it. And we've moved well beyond, I just really like the park. Mm -hmm. I'm then going to explore all of those things. And then, as part of the other two steps, well, here's what it might sound like. Would it help if you did know how much time we were going to have at the park? Yes. We can do that. Um, when could I tell you that? Like, right, when we get there or, like, on the way there? Good, because, you know, I think you're right. It's different on different times. And I am now recognizing that that made it really hard for you, not easier. I thought I was doing you a favor, but I'm now starting to recognize that that actually may have made it harder for you. Tell me, is there anything about the going home to do homework that is making it hard to leave the park? Tell me more about that one. Well, the park is a lot more fun than the homework, but sometimes there's homework that I really, really don't want to do. Tell me more about that. Oh, there's just homework that's really hard. Goodness, we are starting to get some traction here. And I know that I'm making a little bit more complicated, but these are the things that we need to know. And if we're simply, just to make the point really clear, if we're dragging the kid out of the park, kicking and screaming because we are the authority figure, we're missing all of this information. And the kid is coming to recognize that we aren't listening. We are not being responsive to the hand we've been dealt. I frequently say to people, the number one complaint I get from parents is that their kid won't talk to them. Mm -hmm. And the number one complaint I get from kids is that their parents don't listen. <laughs> I remember saying that in the book. <laughs> yeah, so true, isn't it? <laughs> so. We would come together on a solution. We would see if that solution worked. The parents and the defined all concern step would have to articulate why it's important that that expectation be met. Maybe it's that we have to get home to make dinner. Otherwise, we're going to be hungry. We have to get home because, for whatever reason, right? And then we're putting our heads together to try to address the kid's concern and our concern in a way that's realistic. And now we're rolling. And now we're not dragging the kid out of the park anymore. And now we're not using power to accomplish anything. We have replaced power with collaboration mm -hmm. and taught some really important life lessons in the process. Mm -hmm. And so the kinds of solutions that you would be looking to generate in that specific example would include, I mean, if the child's having difficulty with the homework or the timing of the homework, that could be something that's addressed. What, what about some of the other issues related to, you know, I, I really love spending time with my friends and um, you know, that those kinds of things that are less maybe easy to find a, a thing the parent can fix? Well, depending on what we heard further, and that's still slightly surface, right? But depending on what we heard further, here's what we might hear further. Sometimes we're in the middle of a game and I want to see the game through to the end. Mm -hmm. And you're trying to make me leave when the game is not done yet. And I really want to know who won. All right, now I can sink my teeth into this, all right? Because, and I've seen this with video games as well. This doesn't have to be the park because video games are a game as well, right? And, and just as an example, if the kid was more aware of how long a time we were going to be at the park, 
and more aware of how much time was left. And if those things were a little bit more concrete based on our agreement with the kid, and the kid knew that there was only five minutes left, I've actually had kids agree to not start playing a 15-minute game Mm -hmm. with only five minutes left, Right. right? I've had kids agree that there's a way to finish the game the next day. So, you know, it's interesting. There's this universe of solutions that are out there. Mm -hmm. We limit ourselves and our kids tremendously when we don't engage our kids in this process. So the problem is, I don't know what the solution is going to be because I've probably worked on that unsolved problem, I don't know, four or 500 times. (laughs) And while there are some common solutions I don't like to mess up all the fun of having people stumble upon solutions themselves. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. That invitation step can be pretty fun too, Mm -hmm. because it's always amazing to see what kids can come up with. Yeah, it really is. (laughs) Okay. So I have about 15 more questions about uh, (laughs) about the research, but I'm going to take one for the team here. I'm going to ask one question about the research that is really bugging me. And then I'd love to spend a bit more time on, on the questions the parents submitted. So one thing that I'm super curious about is the idea that, that where you've explored a number of times in, in your peer-reviewed research, comparing the effectiveness of uh, collaborative and proactive solutions with parent management training, which focuses more on changing children's behaviors using tools like direct and clear commands, one-on-one time to reinforce pro-social behaviors, time out from reinforcers of negative behaviors. And over and over again, it seems that you find these two different, very different approaches are about comparably effective at reducing problematic behaviors. And of course, there's a whole discussion about there about how we use problematic behaviors as the measure of success. <laughs> and I'm wondering why this is that this method that uh, is so reliant on behaviorism and particularly on creating these clear expectations, which to me, it seems like, well, that's just another thing I can defy <laughs> with a child who's already feeling as though they're not being heard. Why is this method as effective at reducing problematic behaviors as the CPS method? And I mean, I'm on board with CPS, but why should I tell parents to use this method rather than training their children? Oof, because... (laughs) See, I I knew I needed to do this. I needed to get to that answer. (laughs) This is good. The reason that in research, we have focused on behavior as an important outcome is because that's what researchers focus on. Mm -hmm. And that's what researchers have historically focused on. And when you are trying to achieve the gold standard for your model, and collaborative and proactive solutions has now achieved the gold standard, it is now considered what is called evidence-based, which means that there are enough studies comparing it to the more traditional approach, which focuses on behavior, and showing that it is basically the equivalent in improving behavior Mm -hmm. of approaches that focus on behavior, it is now considered evidence-based. You got to go with the raw material that the others have gone with in trying to show that you're evidence-based. Otherwise, you're not evidence-based. Here's why that's important. It is really good that there is another way of doing things that achieves the equivalent results as it relates to behavior, as the models that have focused almost exclusively on behavior. 
That is a very positive development. Because? Even though the outcome is focused on behavior, there's really no choice about that when you're trying to be evidence-based, because that's what the models you're comparing yourself to have focused on before you. Mm-hmm. Now, if you said to me, do you think that behavior is the most important outcome to focus on? My answer would be, for some folks, yes. But relationship is an important thing to focus on, too. And communication is an important thing to focus on, too. And the kid feeling a sense of agency and a kid feeling that his or her voice is being heard is an important thing to focus on, too. But in these early studies of collaborative and proactive solutions, what I was primarily focused on and what other researchers were primarily focused on is seeing how CPS matches up against approaches that have been primarily focused on behavior. Mm -hmm. So that's the boat that you're in when you are trying to establish your model as evidence-based. Having now done that, am I freed up to focus on other things that may, in many people's views, be even more important than behavior? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so then I want to take that one step further. Maybe we shouldn't be surprised that models that focus on change of behavior end up changing behavior. (laughs) And that uh, even though changing behavior isn't our explicit goal here, this is as effective as a model that focuses on changing behavior. And it also has these other benefits that are not being captured in this particular study that we can now go and explore. Is Is it right to say that? It is right to say that. And by the way, in studies, in our studies, we have looked at other variables besides behavior. We have looked at parent-child communication. We have looked at parent-child relationship. And those things did improve significantly more with collaborative and proactive solutions than they did with rewarding and punishing. Hasn't been our primary focal point, but they are things that we have not completely neglected. But here's what's interesting. The literature on behavioral approaches to challenging behavior in kids has established rewarding and punishing as evidence-based. But there are some, as many of the adherents and some of the key voices of that way of doing things have stated, it's not pure. It's not like a lot of parents drop out of that treatment before it's even completed. Mm -hmm. The older a kid gets, the more aggressive a kid gets, the less likely that treatment is to work. But reward and punishment programs especially have the Achilles heel when it comes to durability of treatment effects. You get a big bang for your buck early on with rewarding and punishing, but I'm sure as many of the parents who are listening to this will agree, those effects either tend not to be durable or parents sticking with the program tends not to be durable or both. I'm actually not interested in short-term gains. I'm interested in durability of gains And um, when it comes to durability of games, there is at least some evidence to suggest that when you're solving problems collaboratively and proactively, the improvements are more durable. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Thank you for for digging into that a little bit for us. Okay. So let's go to some of the questions that listeners submitted Um, and kind of starting at the younger end of the spectrum. I've read in your books that you can problem solve with an infant. (laughs) And I agree that that's possible to an extent. It does to me seem easier when the infant's needs are probably related to food or being hot or cold or missing a parent or being tired. You know, there's a, a smaller spectrum of potential issues. And so one parent said that, you know, when a child's about two, they have a few words 
words, but not a lot. And maybe we're asking them to help tidy up. We're not saying go tidy your room. We're saying, you know, can we tidy this thing up together? They just say, I don't want to. And they either won't or can't say anything at all about how they feel. And the parent just feels like, well, I'm at a dead end here. I don't know where to go. Where can we go with that? Well, it depends on the verbal skills of the two-year-old. My now 23-year-old daughter was very verbal at two. And so I would have been able to extract some information from her, but I'm not, not looking so much for how she feels. And I'm, I'm not allergic to asking kids how they feel. It's just not the information that I'm looking for at that moment. I'm looking for what's hard about meeting that expectation. But I just got stuck in the heat of the moment again. I've asked her to clean up and she won't. If she's chronically having difficulty cleaning up, then we can have this conversation proactively outside the heat of the moment. I cannot emphasize that point enough. So let's put it outside the heat of the moment because that's preferable. I've noticed that sometimes it's hard for you to clean up your toys. What's up? Now, if it's a verbal two-year-old, there's a good chance you'll get something. If it's not a verbal two-year-old, you can guess and see if the not verbal two-year-old can verify for you. And by the way, that's not a real far cry from what you're doing with infants. But I was making a face as you were saying that the number of things that infants could be concerned about is actually rather limited. You know, when it comes to difficulty cleaning up, there's not going to be that many possibilities for a two-year-old. Okay, so maybe the child finds it boring. They're, they're not willing to tell you they find it boring, but they find it boring. And Well, you could guess that. Yeah. And if they verified that, I suppose you could problem solve ways to make it more interesting. We could put music on and march around the room. We could sing. There's things we can do to make it less boring. Mm -hmm. We could go as fast as we can so it doesn't last as long as it frequently does. This is the interesting thing. What I'm going to bet on is that that two-year-old probably has some ideas. I'm going to bet that the parent has some ideas. I'm going to bet that it's not just boring. Often, when kids are having difficulty cleaning up, it's because the task, not always, because I don't like to say anything's always, it's because the task at hand feels very overwhelming to them. They have made quite the mess, and they do not feel capable of tackling this all on their own, and so they feel that they need some help. So it all depends on what we hear, but if it's a nonverbal two-year-old, if it's a nonverbal 17-year-old... <laughs> We do this with nonverbal kids all the time, mm -hmm. right? So that's why I actually don't see that much difference between problem solving with an infant who has no words, but we're still trying to figure it out, mm -hmm. a two-year-old who has no words, a 17-year-old who has no words. Clearly, it's preferable if the kid can tell us in words because words are our preferred modality for communicating. Mm -hmm. But nonverbal kids, like infants, do communicate. And so even though it's not going to be in the way that we prefer, boy, can you get a lot of information out of a kid who's nonverbal, okay. even if it's not through the spoken word. Okay. And so you're doing that by hypothesizing, oh my goodness, that there are a lot of toys on the floor. Does it just kind of seem like it's too much? And you're looking for a sign that, yes, this is it? Or tell us more about what that looks like practically in the moment. Well, here's what's interesting, and I don't know if we want to spend too much time on this. There's ways that we can give kids to communicate with us, whether we're onto something. And I frequently do it by teaching kids fingers. Mm -hmm. People do this all the time, right? This is fingers. Mm 
mm-hmm. right? Thumbs up or this thumbs is down. fingers, yeah. right? This is fingers. In nonverbal kids, we often use the technology that they're using to communicate and put yes and no on the home screen Mm -hmm. so that they can tap yes or no. Great example of how communication isn't quite as complicated as we think. Mm -hmm. There's lots of ways to extract information from a kid, nonverbal or otherwise, besides just having what we would consider to be a regular old conversation with them. But one thing I want to make really clear, you are shooting yourself in the foot if you're doing this in the heat of the moment. (laughs) I guarantee you that this is not the first time this kid has had difficulty cleaning up. Why are we stuck in the heat of the moment again trying to do this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. So sticking with that idea that we know we need to not do this in the heat of the moment, maybe there's an issue that has continually been challenging. The most common issue I hear uh, when this comes up is hitting a younger sibling. (laughs) But I'm also thinking of an example where the child, when they eat breakfast, they have a great morning. When they don't eat breakfast, they, I mean, the whole morning just turns into a disaster for the entire family. And we both know if a child would just eat and things would get better and they would have a great morning together. And so we're having, we wait for later in the day when we're fed, we're rested, we're having this conversation with the child. You know, what can we do here? We could maybe... Well, remember, we're not jumping to what do we do here yet. I don't know why the kids have... Here's the interesting thing. I'm going to reduce this to a simple unsolved problem. Yeah. We may have all kinds of good reasons for wanting the kid to eat breakfast, but the bottom line is the kid is having difficulty eating breakfast in the morning. Yeah. That's our expectation. Our expectation, whatever reason we have that expectation, is that the kid eat breakfast in the morning. But I cannot jump to the invitation step until I've done the first two steps, right? I'm going to come up with solutions that are just like that father who bought 12 different flavors of toothpaste. (laughs) Unless I know what's getting in the kid's way, I'm taking shots in the dark when the person who could actually tell me what's difficult about eating breakfast is sitting right in front of me, not eating breakfast. (laughs) I wonder what's going on here. So now I love that you said we're outside the heat of the moment. That's perfect, right? I just don't want us jumping to solutions too quickly mm-hmm. until we know what's making it hard for the kid to meet the expectation. I already know why we think it's important that the expectation be met. I got to know what's hard about meeting that expectation. Could be, boy, it could be, I don't know, six to eight things. Mm-hmm. Could be the texture of the food. Yep. Could be that this kid has a very limited range of things that the kid wants to eat and the parent is absolutely bound and determined that the kid eats spinach for breakfast and <laughs> form, you know, so there's all kinds of things that it could be. Mm-hmm. We've got to come up with a solution together, but we can't do that until we've heard the concerns of both parties. Yeah. And so what we're going to do is to, again, use the drilling approach to Correct. try to, to understand what's going on here. And even if the child is not saying anything, is refusing to say something. And and I, you know, what another person wrote and said, well, she'll try a problem solving conversation. She'll try the empathy step. And the child will say, well, it doesn't matter. Or I don't know, or that I don't care. (laughs) And so if the child is just trying to extract themselves from that conversation as fast as possible, no matter what the issue is. Well, I don't know if the kid is trying to extract themselves from the conversation. I don't mean can mean like, I don't know, can mean like 20 different things. (laughs) I don't know, can mean you sprung this on me. Mm -hmm. 
I don't know can mean you're doing this in the heat of the moment and I want to get back to what I was doing. Mm-hmm. I don't know can mean I think you're going to lower the boom the minute I say anything. So why should I talk? Mm-hmm. I don't care can mean many of the same things. All the more reason to do this proactively, but we can't get put off by these very common things that kids say, especially when they are new to the process. Mm-hmm. I don't know is very common. In fact, I expect, I don't know, in every empathy step that I do. Mm. Right? Every empathy step has, I don't know, or a shrug of the shoulders. Uh, some empathy steps, I would say this happens less often, has, I don't care. It is a less good sign when the kid says there's no point in talking about this. Mm-hmm that can be a sign that the kid has lost faith that this problem will ever get solved and may even have lost faith that their concerns are actually going to be listened to. So here's the interesting thing. All of those things have meaning beyond just what the kid said. So if we get put off by those things and don't explore them further, we miss additional information. Mm -hmm. Pity. Those things are not showstoppers. Those are very common things that we move past with good drilling. Yeah. Okay. So I just want to clarify, Dr. Russ Green (laughs) said on video and audio that he hears, I don't know from a child on a regular basis in a problem solving conversation. And there are ways to move beyond it that we shouldn't accept. I don't know as, okay, well, that's the end of it. Then this problem is not solvable. That is so not the end of it. Words can't say. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so I know we need to finish on time and I just want to squeeze in one more question about uh, issues related to impulsivity and the idea that a child might just, you know, they may be on board with the idea that we've all come up with in this, we've gone through the steps, we've come up with an idea that we both believe will work. And then in the moment, the child just cannot regulate themselves well enough to be able to implement it. What, What do we do in those kinds of situations? We say to ourselves, Given that this kid, that this solution did not work for this kid. Just one more thing before you head out. If your child aged 1 to 10 has a massive tantrum because you made the wrong dinner, or it's a school day, or it's not a school day, it's time to put shoes on, their sibling touched them, or their sibling looked at them, it may seem like you have to set more limits to get them to eat dinner, get ready for school, and just stop the tantrums. But it's possible that the limits you're setting are causing part of the problem. I'll help you to set loving and effective limits in my free workshop. Sign up right now before you forget at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash setting limits. Did we come up with a solution that really wasn't very realistic, mm-hmm. given who this kid is? I mean, Solutions that don't work are very informative. They tell us that we missed something. Mm-hmm. They tell us that we came up with a solution that there wasn't a snowball's chance this kid was going to be able to do. <laughs> they tell us a lot, right? And so I don't freak out over solutions that didn't work. In real life, solutions that work usually come after the ones that didn't and come from what we learned from them. Mm-hmm. So if we've agreed to a solution with an impulsive kid and the kid's impulsiveness makes it so that that solution is not going to work, then we've agreed on a solution that isn't realistic for that kid. And we got to go back to the drawing board and figure out something that would be more realistic 
given that kid. This is not pie in the sky. This is not wishful thinking. We're not agreeing on a solution saying, you know, if my kid wasn't impulsive, this solution would work beautifully. <laughs> so let's roll with it. Yeah. Your kid is your kid. You're being responsive to the hand you've been dealt. You are not agreeing on solutions that you know in your mind's eye, this is not going to fly. But if in your mind's eye, you thought it was going to fly and then it didn't, that's information. Back to plan B to get it sorted out. All right. Well, I know we're out of time. Thank you so much. I hope one day we get to meet maybe at a conference or something and I will get to <laughs> drill into all of my questions about the research and, and all the rest of it. But I'm so glad that we were able to help so many parents today with all of this information. So thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you for inviting me to do this. And I have to tell you, you asked the highest level questions. There's a, there's a bunch that you sent to me that we couldn't quite get to. I know. <laughs> we asked higher level questions than any interviewer. So I hope we do cross paths and we have an hour or two to go through all those questions because it'd be fun to talk about them. That would be lovely. Well, thank you so much again. And so listeners can find the links to all of Dr. Green's books, as well as references for the show at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash CPS. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Your Parenting Mojo. Don't forget to subscribe to the show at yourparentingmojo.com to receive new episode notifications and the free guide to seven parenting myths that we can leave behind. And join the Your Parenting Mojo Facebook group for more respectful research-based ideas to help kids thrive and make parenting easier for you. I'll see you next time on Your Parenting Mojo.